Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 24. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Psalms 20 to 24 have brought us through a sequence of songs about the kingdom of God, and particularly about the king, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. Psalm 20 started by asking the Lord to send help from the sanctuary in order to deliver his anointed, to deliver the Messiah. Psalm 21 was then the song of praise as the Messiah celebrates God's salvation. And then Psalm 22 is the song of the suffering Messiah as he passes from death into everlasting life. And there's a way in which Psalm 22 is capturing all the themes of this whole section of the Psalter because Psalm 22 also says that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The kingship of God and the kingship of the Messiah, of the son of David, is woven together in these psalms. Because the kingship of God and the kingship of his Messiah is ultimately all about the nations. Uh, By the way, that's us, because we weren't anywhere near Jerusalem when our ancestors were living at this time. That the nations might come and worship the Lord. And last time we saw Psalm 23, and we heard how the king, the Messiah, looks to the Lord as his shepherd and will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we've been starting to see kingship Messiah themes being woven together with sanctuary temple themes. And now in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Well, Psalms 20 to 23 have set you up to think, David, the Messiah, the one whom God delivers from death and exalts to his right hand. Now, I mean, all of this is, has already been set up. If you think back, I know this is now way back to Psalm 18 and 19 because Psalm 18 was David's celebration of how God has delivered him and Psalm 19 was David's celebration of God's law from the heavens. And then what happened? So in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
Now we come to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. So we've got the heavens declaring the glory of God. The earth is the Lord's. Oh, and guess what? There's a three-part universe here. Heavens, earth, seas. Keep going. We'll get there. Psalm 29 is where is the one psalm that uses the word for the flood that was used from Genesis when it talks about. So this is where heavens, earth, seas. We've, this is all woven together in order to show what is God doing in David? What is God doing in his king? He is bringing all creation into subjection to his son. Which, you know, we saw that back in Psalms 1 and 2. This is, this is what God is doing in history. This is what he's doing in his people. And, and then we'll see how all of these songs of the king, all of these songs of the Messiah that we're hearing at the first part of the 20s will then be centered around Psalm 25 and the word of the Lord keeping, and keeping God's covenant. And then the theme of dwelling in God's house will just take over in Psalms 26 to 30. So we'll just basically, Psalm 24 is this hinge moving us from the kingdom psalms, the songs of the king, to what does it mean to dwell in God's house? Our New Testament lesson I've I changed at the last minute will be Hebrews chapter 12. We've already heard part of it, but Hebrews chapter 12 is reflecting on our theme. So let us hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he'd found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Hebrews' answer is, Jesus. And because Jesus has ascended the hill of the Lord, because Jesus stands in the holy place, therefore we come not to an earthly mountain, but to the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, children, do you know where you are? We're sitting in church, right, Pastor? Well, yes. You are at church, but what does that mean? Hebrews tells us that we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, so that means that you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, everything we do here on Sunday morning is reminding us of this. You have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's you. When we come together on the Lord's Day, we come to meet with God himself. As we gather with a, a few of God's people physically, we gather also with the whole church of the firstborn. All God's people from all times and places gather at the heavenly throne. Now, some would say, but, you know, Pastor, you know, Hebrews 12 is, is talking about sort of who we are in Christ. So this is every day, not just on Sunday. But that's true. This is every day that we gather at the heavenly throne. And that's why seeing it clearly on Sunday is so important. If we don't see it here when we are gathered together with God's people in his presence, why would we expect to see it anyplace else? Because every Sunday we gather, we ascend the hill of the Lord as we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the most important thing for you to see is Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that he endured for us. 
When we come together to worship the triune God, we need to see by faith as the, the ceiling is rolled back and the glory of the Lord is revealed as we ascend into the heavenlies. This is what we are doing. Now, what's interesting is that in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there, there's an additional line to that opening, the, a Psalm of David. It says, for the first day of the week. Now, that isn't there in the original, so I'm not going to claim that's inspired, but it suggests that the priests in the temple were using Psalm 24 in the temple liturgy on the first day of the week. Hmm, those were some pretty insightful priests. Because Psalm 24 is all about how the king of glory enters the heavenly holy place on the first day of the week. Now, if you think back to all that I've ever preached on the first day, eighth day theme in the Old Testament, uh, there's, I mean, these priests understood that. And so they understood this is, this is what the first day of the new creation is all about. And the key word to Psalm 24 is the word lift. There's an upward movement to the whole psalm with its rising images of ascending and lifting. You can see it clearly in verse 4, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And of course, in the refrain in verses 7 and 9, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors. There's actually another usage that you're not going to catch in English, and that's in verse 5. When it says, he will receive blessing from the Lord, the, the verb there is the same verb. So you could translate it, he will lift up blessings from the Lord. It's just that's not good English, so I'm glad they didn't translate it that way. But it's important to see the connection between the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false, but instead lifts up blessings from the Lord. This is also the verb used in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Literally, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain. In a psalm where the whole point is, how do we get from earth to heaven? How do we get from the problem of, of a lack of pure hearts, the lack of clean hands, and to the ascent of the king of glory into the holy place? This is showing us the importance of how we lift up, and what do we lift up? When we hear the opening line, the, the earth is the Lord's, we probably tend to think in terms of, oh, oh the earth, right, the planet. But in, when an Israelite would hear the earth, he would remember how God created three realms, the heavens, the earth, and the seas. So the earth doesn't refer to a planet, but to the dry land. In Genesis 1, God called the dry land earth, and the waters he called seas. And you see this as well in, how, in verse 2, how God has founded the earth upon the seas. Uh, it's not that they saw it as floating necessarily, but, but when you, I mean, where does water go? Down. So the water is below earth in the sense of it's where it always goes. But in Psalm 19, we saw the heavens proclaiming the glory of God. And now in Psalm 24, the dry land, the place where humans dwell, belongs to the Lord. And 
this is where, as I mentioned earlier, in Psalm 29, we'll hear the only reference to the word flood outside of Genesis 6 through 10. So the, the waters that drowned the earth in the flood will be coming back and we'll hearing, hearing about them in Psalm 29. But the earth belongs to the Lord, the world, and those who dwell in it. Because the earth refers not only to the dry land, but also to the inhabitants thereof. The, in Genesis 10, when it speaks of the, 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 the use of the same word to refer to the particular lands of the nations. And God gives lands to a nation for a time. Each, each nation, each people, the times of their inhabitant in a, inhabitants in a particular land belongs to God. So the, the earth can refer to the whole of the dry land or any particular part of the dry land that belongs to a particular nation. Now, why, why is this important? Because in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, go forth from your father's house and go to the Eretz, go to the, the earth, the land that I will show you. Go to this particular piece of dry land that I will give you. And when you hear about the land of Canaan throughout the Pentateuch, it's the Haaretz, it's the land of Canaan, the earth of Canaan. This is the promised land, the place where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now God promises to Abraham an earth. He promises to Abraham a land. And but not only does the earth belong to the Lord, also the world and those who dwell therein, the world dwellers belong to God. We're talking about the inhabited world. It's not just this one piece of real estate in the Middle East, but indeed all the earth, all the peoples who dwell in it belong to God. And this sets us up for what Paul will do with this in Romans 4, because Paul says the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be the heir of the world. Not just a little piece of real estate in the Middle East, but all the earth. What were the three parts of the promise to Abraham? The land and the seed and the blessing to the nations. The land isn't just Canaan. Paul says the promise was bigger. Because if the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, then the promise to Abraham's seed is that he would be heir of the world. But if verses 1 and 2 tell us that all the inhabitants of the world belong to God, then this perhaps only heightens our discomfort with reality. If everyone and everything belongs to God, well, it's pretty obvious that not everyone and everything is acting like it. So how can we, how can anyone ascend the hill of the Lord? We just finished a series in the evening service on Leviticus, and, and Leviticus is all about this question. In fact, Michael Morales wrote a book on Leviticus using the, this verse from Psalm 24, Who Shall Ascend the Hill of the Lord, as his title for the book about Leviticus. I think he's absolutely right. Leviticus is all about who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who can enter into God's holy place. And if verses 1 and 2 focus upon the earth and all who dwell in it. Verse 3 turns our eyes upwards because, well, ostensibly the hill of the Lord is, well, isn't that where the, the sanctuary is? Isn't that where the temple is? Yet the earthly sanctuary was always seen as a picture, as a pointer to the heavenly holy of holies. 
Coming into the holy place, standing in the holy place, means to come into the presence of the Lord himself. When the high priest enters the holy of holies, he's, he's in a sense, no longer on earth. He is now in the heavenlies. He is now in the very presence of God. But notice the singular focus here. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He, singular, who has clean hands and a pure heart. People have speculated as to how this psalm was used. Could it have been used as the enthronement psalm for the son of David? Or was it an annual enthronement enthronement ceremony where the Ark of the Covenant was brought out and then taken back into the Holy of Holies? I don't know. Speculations aren't all that helpful. But that's where that title from the Septuagint does come in handy for the first day of the week. Because that tells us how people were thinking about Psalm 24 back then. The priests used Psalm 24 on the first day of the week. Because the first day of the week is the day after the seventh day. On the seventh day, man was to enter God's rest. But then the seventh day ends, and we still haven't entered God's rest. There, there must be another day, as Hebrews tells us. There must be an eighth day, the first day of a new creation. And that's what Psalm 24 is all about. The point of the psalm is that there is one who can enter God's rest. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. His, his outward conformity to God's law is matched by his inward conformity to God himself. He does not lift up his soul to what is, what is false. Your soul refers to that deepest, most intimate part of you, of who you are. He does not lift up his soul to, to emptiness. I said earlier that this is the same verb as in the third commandment. Well, the noun is also related. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to falsehood. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to falsehood. Psalm 24 is playing off the third commandment. In the same way that we should not lift up the name of the Lord our God to what is vain, so also you should not lift up your soul to what is vain, to what is empty. This is our fundamental problem. As Colin said nicely in in Sunday school, the aim of every human life is happiness. We want to be full. We want meaning and purpose and happiness in our lives. But we keep expecting fulfillment and happiness from that which is empty and that which cannot fill us. The empty and the deceitful will always leave us empty, and deceived. And that's why the same use of the same verb in verse 5 is so important. He has not lifted up his soul to vanity, but instead he shall lift up a blessing from the Lord. Notice the difference. When we lift up our souls to vanity, we are pursuing our own glorious agenda, which turns out to be empty and deceitful. But when we lift up a blessing from the Lord, if you just, even just the way you think about that, wait, I, how do I lift up a blessing from the Lord? It's a gift. The lifting up your soul to, to the, what is vain, that's all of the energy of, I will accomplish this. Lifting up the blessing from the Lord. That's why the translation's a good one. 
You shall receive blessings from the Lord. But remember, it's the same verb, lifting up the blessing from the Lord. As we went through Leviticus, we were challenged to think differently about holiness. And we can sometimes be tempted to to think of, of the holy as a besieged citadel. One commentator raises a good question about this. If the world contains small pockets of holiness, like a hill of the Lord or a temple surrounded by vast areas of unholiness, and if the unholy has the power to contaminate the holy, but the holy does not have the power to infect or decontaminate the unholy, what future, I ask myself, is there for the holy? The holy is rather under threat, is it not? If it has to be protected from the unholy by the exclusion of unrighteous people from visiting the sanctuary. For if impure people are supposed to be kept out of the shrine or keep themselves out in order to protect its holiness, what happens if impure people are inadvertently allowed in? Does the holy thereby become unholy? This is, in one sense, sort of the question that Leviticus was addressing But this is the marvelous message of where Leviticus is going in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the holiness of Jesus is such that what happens when Jesus touches the unclean? Does the unclean contaminate Jesus? This is one thing I got to say for the Pharisees, in spite of all of how much they get wrong, they got one thing right. They never accused Jesus of being unclean for touching lepers. They, could, they, they just do better. When he touches the leper, the leper becomes clean. Obviously, that does not make Jesus unclean. They say all sorts of things about him. They lie about him all sorts of other ways. That's one thing they never said. Because when he touches the unclean, they become clean. Now, how you explain that apart from the power of God, I don't know. But when he touches the unclean, they became clean. This is the holiness that Psalm 24 longs for. A holiness that cannot be corrupted. A holiness that cannot be contaminated. A holiness that decontaminates everything it touches and brings all that it touches into fellowship with God himself. This is the holiness of Jesus that that. As when, when, when Hebrews says, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, that's the holiness that, that is in Jesus and the holiness that is now in you, that we might share his holiness, Hebrews said. If, if holiness is simply that which makes God so high and different and far off, how can we share in his holiness? His holiness is all, it is that which makes him high and far off but it's also that which impelled him to draw near in the incarnation of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, that he joined himself to our humanity so that he might join our humanity to himself. This friendship that we heard about in Sunday school that is is everything that Aristotle longed for but couldn't quite see. And this is why verse 6 is so important because the singular now turns to a plural. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face. Actually, in Hebrew, the word God isn't there. So let's just try to see what what happens if, if we're not talking about seeking the face of God. 
What if we actually say, who seek the face of Jacob? My hunch is the Septuagint just couldn't imagine how, the, oh, there must have been a word missing. Let's put one in. Because seek the face of Jacob? What would that mean? Well, in Genesis 25, 27, Jacob was said to be a blameless man. Modern commentators don't agree. Doesn't change what the text says. <laughs> and most ancient commentators had no difficulty seeing Jacob as a blameless man. But if you think of Jacob as a blameless man, what does it mean, and particularly in the context of Psalm 24, well, you're talking about one who does not lift up his soul to what is worthless. Well, did Jacob ever turn aside to follow idols? No, no. One who does not swear deceitfully. Okay, well, this is Jacob. This is a generation seeking the face of Jacob. And when this one comes, he, so now we're back to the singular, this one like Jacob, will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. When the king like Jacob comes, the blessing of Jacob will come. The blessing of Jacob upon his sons and how he had spoken of how the scepter would not depart from Judah until the one came to whom it belonged. Oh, right. We're in a section of Psalms talking about the king, talking about the, the one from the tribe of Judah, the son of David, who will be the one who receives the scepter. So maybe Psalm 24 was sung for every new son of David who ascended the throne. Will this be the one? Or maybe it was sung to symbolize the ascension of God to his throne, which would only heighten the disjunction between the holiness of God and the uncleanness of everyone else, the need for one who would join God and man. Because the point winds up being the same, when, however it was used, when this blameless man comes, when the one with clean hands and a pure heart comes, then he will lift up, he will receive blessing from the Lord, he will lift up, he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16 regarding the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The resurrection of Jesus was his vindication, his justification. It's when Jesus was declared righteous. The difference being, you know, in our justification, it's the unrighteous being declared righteous. In his justification, he was declared righteous because he was righteous. So this second section of Psalm 24 shows us our need for the one whose hands are clean, the one who receives blessing and righteousness from God. You might think this is the end of the story. What more do we need? Well, it's, it's not enough for Jesus to be the righteous mediator. It is not enough for him to enter the holy place. After all, where would that leave us? Oh, great. Jesus, Jesus gets to go there. What happens to us? We've, we've seen that the earth belongs to the Lord. And yet these things, these people that belong to God are not holy. They are not able to ascend into his holy place. And so we need a king of glory who will conquer his and our enemies. The king is a warrior. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is a mighty man. A mighty warrior. Now, this sometimes makes modern people feel uncomfortable. God, a warrior? What? We don't like thinking of the triumph of God in such crassly physical terms. But Psalm 24 calls us to see the king of glory as the strong and mighty one. The one who goes out to battle against all his and our foes. And who defeats his and our foes and brings victory to his people. Our shorter catechism asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? He he executes the office of a king first by subduing us to himself. How often do you think of Christ's rule in your life? Do you think of Christ as a mighty warrior who comes to subdue you? But if we're honest with ourselves, yeah, I need that. But he also rules and defends us and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. We often think of Christ's conquering in very bland terms, but brothers and sisters, Jesus is king. He is the king of glory. He rules over the nations of the earth. And yes, his sway is spiritual. If you mean by that, he rules by his Holy Spirit. And our weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the Word of God is wielded by the one who is the Word made flesh, when King Jesus speaks, it happens. It's why I've been referring to Psalm 29, because we'll get there in a few weeks, where the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The word of the Lord is not some, oh, second best weapon. No, the word of the Lord is the, is the, is the, is the, the weapon that conquers all others. When the voice of the Lord speaks, all the earth trembles before him. When King Jesus speaks, his word can literally overthrow kingdoms, strike people dead on the spot, and bring destruction on the earth. What is actually the most powerful? And verses 9 and 10 echo verses 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. What comes to the fore is that Israel's only hope, humanity's only hope, is if Yahweh himself comes as the king of glory who will fulfill all that was promised to Jacob. Now, this phrase king of glory is almost unique here. It's not used elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's only used once in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul speaks of Christ as the Lord of glory. When Paul says that Jesus is Lord, he is affirming the kingship of Christ. He is the Lord of glory who fulfills what Psalm 24 had spoken of. He is the conquering king of glory and his conquest has come about through a most unusual victory, the crucifixion of the king. Paul is saying that Jesus has come as the conquering king of glory 
who has taken upon himself the uncleanness of his people so that his holiness might decontaminate us. And so as we sing Psalm 24, we sing Psalm 24 as those who sing the glory of the triumphant king as he ascends to the right hand of the Father. For us, there is a definite moment in the liturgy of heaven when this song is sung. It's like in Revelation 5, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may enter his holy place? Only the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, only the lamb who was slain. He is the king of glory who ascends in glorious triumph to the throne of God. So where are we in Psalm 24? Sure, we are those who dwell in the world in verse 1. You are not the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, at least not in yourself. But in Christ, that becomes true of you. And it is supposed to become more and more true of us each day. But the most important place where you are in Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. You are the temple. You are the place where Jesus is coming to dwell. He comes to enter his people, that he that his life might become ours. Because when the king of glory comes, the gates of his holy temple will open. When the king of glory comes, his temple rejoices at his approach, throws open the gates to welcome our conquering king, that he might abide with us and dwell with us all our days. O Lord, our God, have mercy upon us, because even this day, as we meet with our triumphant king of glory, as we behold the coming of the king, as he rides in victory to his temple, we rejoice before you and we give you thanks because of the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has lifted up a blessing from his father, from you, our God, and righteousness, the God of his salvation. And therefore we are being built into that holy place as living stones into a suitable dwelling place for the Lord. Lord, have mercy and help us to to rejoice and be glad, to lift up our heads, to be lifted up, that the King of glory may come in, that we may dwell all our days in your presence as your people, as those who belong to Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.